Welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook Podcast, episode 27. I went to England last week for my mother's birthday. It was a surprise. My going to England, that is, not my mother's birthday, which is on the same day every year. And, well, which has been in the cards since she turned 69. But it was a terrific time. And I realized on this trip just how rural the area I grew up in really is. There's a pub that we walked over to from my parents' cottage. And at various points along the way, you really could be in 1750. The houses are pretty much all older than that. The river is full of wooden boats. The landscape is completely unspoiled. It's charming. And except perhaps for Ireland, there's just nowhere else in the world that is quite like it. And it's a guy who now lives in, well, in not that. I was transfixed by it for a while, even though I grew up there. My guest today will be Toby Young, who's technically Lord Young. I only have lords on this show now. If you're not a lord, you can't come on. Unless you're a viscount or an earl or a baron or a marquis or a duke. But that's it. So if you are listening and thinking, one day I'd like to be on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, well, you can't be unless you can get yourself ennobled between now and then. Sorry, I don't make the rules. But before then, I thought I'd share an exciting email I received this week, which reads, Did you know that the Howard County Executive and potential Democratic Party candidate for the U.S. House of Representatives from Maryland's 3rd Congressional District, soon to become an open seat with incumbent Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes likely to jump into the now open U.S. Senate race, is named Calvin Ball. I swear that I'm not making it up. And my correspondent sends a website. VoteCalvinBall.com And I looked it up, and it is indeed real. He's not making it up. This candidate's name, given to him at birth, plastered all over the website, is Calvin Ball. Now, for those of you who are wondering why this matters, Calvin Ball is a game in the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes that has... Well, that has whatever rules Calvin needs it to have at any point. The whole thing is made up. It's malleable, flexible, open-ended. And I use this a lot when describing our politics and in particular when describing our media. So this is a godsend. An actual politician being sent into our system, who is named Calvin 
ball. It's a sign. And I hope he wins. Before we go over to Toby Young, I think we have time for one quick question. That question is, do you enjoy watching or taking part in mixed martial arts or martial arts more broadly? I actually don't. And the reason that I don't, especially the taking part in bit, is that if I took part in it, I would die. It's not that I'm terrible at sports. I'm distinctly average at sports. It's that I'm terrible at any sport or anything that in any way approximates or could be confused for or shares characteristics with dancing. And martial arts do. Most people don't know this, but I actually moved to America because too many people in England had seen me try to dance, so I had to emigrate. When dancing or trying to do martial arts or anything like that, I look like a stick insect who has been tased. Now, like any sports-loving man, I watch the pros, and I think, incorrectly, but I think it anyway, I think... I could sort of see myself doing that, given the right circumstances. I can catch a ball, I can hit a ball, I can throw a ball. How hard could it be? But when I see boxing or MMA or jiu-jitsu or whatever, and I try to put myself in the mind of the person the camera's behind, I imagine myself instead approaching my opponent with a warm smile and saying... I'm so sorry, I think there's been some sort of misunderstanding. And if that fails, of asking if he would consider forgetting all about it if I just gave him my wallet. So I'm afraid not. No mixed martial arts for me, vicariously or otherwise. My guest this week is Toby Young, the General Secretary of the Free Speech Union and the Editor-in-Chief of The Daily Skeptic. Toby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. So a few weeks ago, I had Sam Negus on my podcast. He works at Hillsdale College. He's a British immigrant to the United States. He moved a little bit before... I did and has spent more of his life as a percentage in America than I have. And we talked about our experiences as immigrants and what we liked and don't like and what we miss and so on. But almost ineluctably, the conversation ranged onto free speech and in particular onto free speech in Britain or lack thereof. And I got so many emails from people saying, wow, I didn't know this or that. I looked up this case. I read this story. How on earth did this happen in the land of John Stuart Mill? And so I thought we should start by talking about that, given your work with the Free Speech Union. So why don't you tell me, to start with, what the Free Speech Union is and why you felt it necessary to found it in the first place? Yeah, sure. So um, the Free Speech Union is a membership organization that stands up for the speech rights of its members and campaigns for free speech more widely. I set it up in 2020 
It's uh, just celebrated its third anniversary. We have about 11,000 members, 16 members of staff, more than half of which are now full-time. We've dealt with about 2,000 plus cases since it was set up. We divide our time between casework, legal work, organizing events, both online and offline, publishing research papers, briefings, FAQs. So, you know, if you're asked to declare your gender pronouns in the workplace and you don't feel comfortable doing that, what are your rights? Can you be fired if you refuse FAQs or topics like that? Um, And we also increasingly, I'm spending more and more time on lobbying. So legislative affairs work, trying to not so much improve the laws protecting free speech, but to stop the legal position getting any worse than it already is. And the reason I set up the Free Speech Union was because I felt, I think, in at the beginning of 2018, that free speech had never been in greater peril, not just in the UK, but across the Anglosphere, throughout the English-speaking world, since the end of the Second World War. And uh, there needed to be an organization dedicated to defending it and sticking up for people who found themselves at the eye of, you know, Twitter storms led by outrage mobs seeking to cancel them. Um, And uh, interestingly, even though I thought we'd hit rock bottom at the beginning of 2018, almost as soon as I started the Free Speech Union, we then had the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, both of which I think made things considerably worse. We had a deluge with cases of people who either had got into trouble for questioning the wisdom wisdom of the lockdown policy or for challenging some of the more outlandish claims of BLM. That's why I think it's grown so quickly since I set it up. And since it was created, we've got um, sister organizations that have been set up. So there's one in New Zealand, the Free Speech Union New Zealand, and there's also one now in South Africa, We're hoping to set one up in Australia quite soon. We did briefly set one up in the United States, but then FIRE decided that it was going to extend its remit from beyond higher education to include civil society more widely. So there was, we thought, well, FIRE are a great organization. They're very well funded. They're going to do the job that we were hoping to do. So we we wound up the US branch. And FIRE, it should be said, stepped into the role that the ACLU once played, but now does not. So you mentioned people getting into trouble. There are different ways that that can happen. One of the distinctions I often draw in the United States is between the legal questions and the social questions. Now, to have a proper Mm -hmm. free speech culture, you need both. You need, in the United States context, a robust First Amendment and a judiciary that is willing to uphold it and legislators who aren't minded to violate it But you also need, in the realms that that doesn't touch, a willingness in the public to tolerate other people. Otherwise, you end up with what I think we have now in the United States, which is probably the best protected First Amendment in American history, but a censorious culture in which people will use every private avenue they can to shut down debate. Britain is in a different position in my estimation. Perhaps tell me if I'm wrong. Britain, it seems to me, has a lot of that cultural censoriousness that the United States has adopted, and some of it is inspired by the United States. You mentioned Black Lives Matter. 
but it also seems to have an awful lot of laws on the books that in the American context would be struck down in 10 seconds. Yeah, I think I think that's broadly right. I mean, I think the way you characterized America, it's almost as if the UK is the mirror image. So as you say, we don't have anything like the First Amendment here, uh, nothing like legal protections for free speech of that nature. But at the same time, culturally, there's probably more value attached to free speech, and we are marginally less censorious. I mean, in some ways, we have a tough time because America has exported the kind of Maoist culture of woke intolerance that began in universities, in grievance studies departments, and now, you know, there's been a lab leak and it's now gone viral and it infects every aspect of civil society. So that's been successfully exported to the UK as well as to other English-speaking countries and is beginning, I think, to be exported to certainly the continent of Europe. But you've exported that censorious culture without exporting the First Amendment. That isn't to say we don't have some legal protections. So there are some common law, English common law protections for free speech. And there is the European Convention on Human Rights, Article 10 in particular, protects freedom of expression. And that was incorporated into British law by the Human Rights Act. So there are some legal protections, but they're not nearly as robust as the First Amendment. And uh, even though we do have a slightly healthier culture from a free speech point of view, it is gradually being eroded as more and more wokery pokery crosses the Atlantic. And it is crossing it, you know, jumbo jet load of people, kind of um, uh, missionaries, proselytizing zealots for woke culture are arriving in, in the United Kingdom every day, particularly in Scotland, interestingly. Scotland has the least tolerance for freedom of speech of anywhere in the United Kingdom, and probably the least robust legal protections too. So it's a slightly different legal system. Uh, and one of the reasons it has a less tolerant culture than other parts of the UK is because Scottish universities attract a lot of American graduate students. Um, so Scot Scotland um, decided it wasn't going to charge um, fees to Indigenous Scottish people to attend university when Tony Blair introduced tuition fees for the first time. So in England, you have to pay you know, upwards of £9,000 a year on tuition alone to attend a university. In Scotland, if you're Scottish, you don't. And the way they make up for the shortfall in their funding model by not charging Scots tuition fees is to charge Americans a great deal. But that also means you have a lot of very woke American graduate students at places like Edinburgh University, St. Andrews, who bring with them this kind of censorious woke culture. And I think that sort of seeped out into the rest of Scottish society. Um, but that seems to be the kind of, that seems to be the portal through which the woke mind virus um, spreads. It's through graduate students, mainly American graduate students, uh, fanning out across the English-speaking world. So I wonder how this works dynamically. The American setup, I can grasp. It is obviously possible to have a constitution that can be enforced against the majority that exists and is sustained despite a lack of majority approval. The First Amendment was passed by 
a majority back in the day. But one of the reasons it's in there is that the founders understood that we have mobs and we have cultural moments and we go through these panics. And you want to have a set of protections that can be invoked. I find it harder to understand how it can work the other way around, at least in the long term. And what you're suggesting is that the British public is not as censorious as the laws under which they live. But you're also suggesting that those laws have got worse and worse over time. Why? The reason there aren't more robust legal protections for free speech on the statute books in the UK is partly because under English common law, unless something is explicitly prohibited, it's permitted. So laws generally evolved in England to prohibit certain activities. If not prohibited, they're permitted. And free speech, you know, for the past 250 years or so, at least, has been permitted. So that's why there aren't better legal protections. It hasn't been felt to be necessary. Well, no, but there are various all things sorts, aren't explicitly prohibited. Yes, but there are all sorts of laws on the books that are used. And I, I take your point about the difference between Scotland and England. And after you said that, I realized that the vast majority of the cases that I've written apoplectically about over the last 10 years were from Scotland, not from England. But there are all manner of laws, or at least court decisions in England, that have narrowed speech. I mean, if that's why you set up the Free Speech Union, right? It's to fight against them. Yeah, no, there certainly are. There are various, uh, under the Public Order Act, which is seemingly a, a living act, because it keeps being expanded, it's, it grows all the time. But under the Public Order Act, originally, stirring up hatred on the basis of someone's ethnicity or their religion was originally prohibited. And then sexual orientation was added to that. And in Scotland, uh, under the Scottish Hate Crime and Public Order Act, which was got royal assent in 2021, though curiously still hasn't been activated yet, various things have been added. So you can be prosecuted for stirring up hatred against all sorts of protected characteristics now in Scotland. But in the UK, it's still only sexual orientation, race and religion. But certainly those are, that is the nearest equivalent we have to hate speech being prohibited. And that wouldn't therefore be allowed in the United States, because all attempts to criminalise hate speech in the US have been shot down by the Supreme Court. That's one source of legal restrictions on what you can say. I mean, there's a kind of grey area, which uh, this rather Orwellian concept of non-crime hate incidents. So the College of Policing, which is a quango, um, a quasi-autonomous national government organisation created by a conservative government, released by a coalition government, we had a conservative prime minister in 2014, issued some guidance to police forces in England and Wales, essentially saying that if someone perceives an action or speech to be based on hostility towards someone else's protected characteristics, and there's a long list of those characteristics, then it can be recorded by the police. In fact, it has to be recorded by the police as what's referred to as a non-crime hate incident. That is to say, what you've done, the sin you've committed, doesn't meet the threshold 
of a criminal offence. It's not against the law. It's not prohibited by the law. But nonetheless, it's hateful and is antisocial behaviour and therefore should be recorded. And if you then apply for a job as a teacher or a carer, uh, you'll be asked to do what's called an enhanced criminal records check. And non-crime hate incidents can, at the discretion of the police force that's recorded them, uh, be disclosed on your enhanced criminal records check. So you might end up not being able to get a job as a teacher or a carer because you're guilty of committing a non-crime. Without any due process? Without any any due process at all. I mean, there is there is a procedure for challenging, appealing an NCHI being recorded against your name. But one of the things which makes that quite difficult is the police often don't tell you. So an NCHI can be recorded against your name and it can show up on an enhanced uh, DBS check, criminal records check, without you knowing anything about it. Yeah, and it's also the other way around than we are supposed to have in free countries, which is that you're supposed to have things put on your record after you've been convicted, not have them put on and then appeal them to see if you can get rid of them. Yes, absolutely. Um, So so one of the things the Free Speech Union has been doing is is campaigning against non-crime hate incidents, and we have been making some headway on that. So the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, Um, has just issued a new uh, statutory code of practice which should limit the number of NCHIs that the police record and retain. Though that's, of course, is being resisted by the College of Policing, a bit of a bum fight going on there, and it hasn't yet been approved by Parliament. But we've got at least as far as that. And so we've made a bit of headway there. And of course, we've got the online safety bill, um, which is currently going through the parliamentary sausage machine, which will empower Ofcom, which is the state broadcasting regulator, to regulate social media, in essence. And um, one of the concepts that originally found itself, found its way into the online safety bill was this concept of speech, which is legal, but harmful, lawful, but awful, similar to NCHIs, not prohibited by law, but which society disapproves of, um, which should be prohibited, even though it's not unlawful. And we've managed to get that taken out of the online safety bill, although it's beginning to creep back in. And there are various amendments that have been proposed, which would effectively, which would have the effect of of reinserting it. But but that's going to, uh, uh, so it's going to say, if, for instance, you say something supposedly motivated by hostility towards a group or an individual with a protected characteristic, then um, social media companies will have to say how they intend to address that in their terms and conditions. And in all likelihood, the way they'll address it is they'll just remove it. So this will be hate speech, which is effectively prohibited, but which isn't against the law. We've got a big fight coming up as the online safety bill goes through Parliament, but it, it's pretty censorious and it's similar to other laws regulating social media that have been passed in other parts of Europe, notably Germany, but also elsewhere. Let me ask you about something you just said that baffled me a little bit, that you expected that there would be pushback against any attempt to reform these twilight zone non-crimes from the College of Policing. Now, I understand why some citizens who vote want hate speech laws, although I profoundly disagree. And in some circumstances, I can understand why the police might stand up and lobby. For example, I understand, although I don't care, why a lot of police officers oppose the loosening of gun restrictions. I understand why a lot of police officers don't want to be filmed 
while they're doing their duty and so why would the college of policing want to be able to add to somebody's criminal record the speech that was on the margins what what would they get out of that i think there's a kind of a rational reason and an irrational reason so the the rational reason is that various senior members of the college of policing and um their outriders in academia have persuaded themselves that recording various forms of antisocial behavior as non-crime hate incidents has the effect of reducing that behavior. And in particular, they think that they can that someone may be on a pathway to committing a hate crime against a member of a protected group. And if you arrest them, take them down to the station, interview them about something they've said on Twitter, which doesn't meet the threshold for being prosecutable, but which nonetheless appears to be motivated by hatred towards the target's protected characteristic, then they're less likely to go on to actually escalate and commit a hate crime. So there's this kind of, it's almost like, um, you know, minority report. They're nipping what might be crimes, which what haven't yet been committed as crimes. They're, they're, They're trying to adjust people's behavior before it leads to criminal conduct. I mean, not something I think the police should be concerning no. themselves with, but I think that's how they, that's the sort of rationale right. is that we're actually, we're, 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 we're preventing crime and crime of a particularly insidious and unpleasant kind, hate crime. Um, I think the irrational reason is that the state is gradually being taken over in a, in a kind of surreptitious way by a kind of growing religion, the fastest growing religion of the 21st century, you know, call it critical social justice, call it the successor ideology, call it Wokus Day. It's not quite the official religion of the state. We don't yet have, you know, a test act, an act of incorporation, but we almost do. You know, it's almost become the official public morality of civil society and There's you don't the just see it in the college of policing now. yeah they, 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 they know i'm giving this podcast Charlie. <laughs> um, they, they, so and you see it, it it isn't just in the college of policing it's across you know uh quangos of every kind it's infiltrated the charitable sector it's embedded itself in the civil service in museums and galleries and universities and schools but it hasn't yet reached official status and it seems weirdly it seems very important to the kind of um, high priests of this new religion that they don't acknowledge their cultural power they like to see themselves as the underdog the little guy fighting against you know the patriarchy white privilege those are the people who are really in power they they see themselves as you know the rebel army fighting against the uh, the rebel alliance fighting against the evil empire so there's this kind of refusal to recognize that they are in fact in power which is why they like things like non-crime hate incidents they don't want to change the law to prohibit the behavior they disapprove of even though they probably could they don't want they don't want to be that official they don't want to take on the robes of officialdom in, in quite that way better to operate on the margins where there's much less due process, where they're much less subject to scrutiny, and where they're able to kind of maintain this kind of self-understanding as fighting against 
you know, the establishment rather than being the establishment. I want to hear about your end game here. You said you'd got into lobbying. Now, about the time that I left England and moved to the United States, 2011-12, there was a push, a successful push in the end, to reform Section 5 of the Public Order Act. This push was led by the comedian Rowan Atkinson, as well as some religious groups and atheist groups and others. I think Peter Tatchell, the gay rights activist, was involved. And to put it simply, this part of the Public Order Act criminalized or potentially criminalized using insulting words. And the most famous example I can remember, it happened at Oxford while I was there, was a guy who told a police officer that his horse was gay and was arrested under Section 5 of the Public Order Act. A lot of comedians, artists said, this is ridiculous, this is going to prevent us satirizing people or writing edgy comedy. And in 2013, they won. That small part of the law was reformed. Now, this was heralded as a great success, and it it should have been. It was a reform that was long overdue. But I wonder, how much of the whole edifice do you want to sweep away? When I come to the UK and I go to the pub with my friends, they often ask me questions about America. And the presumption is crazy American law. And they'll say, well, you know, in America, you can say, I think black people are terrible and should all be slaves. And you can't be arrested for it. And I say, that's correct. Now, obviously, that is an appalling, terrible, disgraceful thing to say. And anyone who thinks or says it is is an appalling person. But I think it is good that people are allowed to say that. I don't want the government superintending speech, even speech that I find absolutely revolting. Do you have in mind the smaller changes, such as removing Section 5 of the Public Order Act? Or... Do you want to get rid of all of it and have a system that is more akin to the one we have here in the United States, where you can say pretty much anything all the way up to sedition? I think in an ideal world, I would like there to be something like the First Amendment that applied across the United Kingdom, and which was enforced by the current Supreme Court. But I think the um, problem, which is something you alluded to, I think, in your opening remarks, the problem with relying too much on the law to protect our speech rights is that you are dependent on senior judges being pro-free speech. I mean, the problem with free speech is it can never be absolute. There are always going to be competing rights. Now, you can prioritize free speech, but even even then, there are going to be competing rights, and judges are always going to therefore have discretion about whether to find in favour of free speech and against the activist group complaining that their feelings have been hurt or that their safety has been endangered or whatever. The problem with over-relying on something like the First Amendment or even more modest changes to the law to better protect free speech in the UK is that you are ultimately dependent on the discretion of senior judges. And unfortunately, many of our senior judges are themselves, they've been enlisted in the new religion of Wokers Day, and therefore are not going to be particularly pro-free speech. I mean, that's one, that's one argument for, I mean, one big argument raging in the UK at the moment is, should we come out of the European Court of Human Rights? Some people think there ought to be another Bill of Rights here, and our Supreme Court should genuinely be supreme. 
and in no way fettered by the European court. But the problem with that argument, I'm not necessarily against that, but one reservation I have about it is that at least to the European Court of Human Rights, countries like Poland and Hungary appoint judges, whereas I think our Supreme Court is probably somewhere to the left of the European Court of Human Rights. And I think that would be the real risk in over-relying not on changing the culture or reminding people why free speech is important and trying to revitalize people's understanding and commitment to free speech, but to over-rely on changes to the law is you'd ultimately be beholden to judges, and judges are increasingly unreliable allies in this fight. Which party in the UK is worse on this? Is there any great benefit to having a conservative government in the free speech realm? In defense of the conservative government, it looks as though a bill called the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, which will better protect free speech and academic freedom um, at universities in England, not elsewhere, but in England, is about to receive royal assent. So it's had its third reading in the House of Commons and the House of Lords. There's a little bit of uh, mopping up going on at the moment, but it's had its last ever vote in the House of Commons earlier this week, and it's going to have one in the House of Lords shortly. And it looks as though that'll receive royal assent later this month. And not only does it marginally improve the protections for free speech and academic freedom in English universities. It also creates a couple of novel enforcement mechanisms, including the right to sue universities if you feel they've breached your free speech. Um, so that is, a, that is a slight improvement that the current Conservative government has made to protecting free speech on campus in England. So all credit to them for doing that. But there are, of course, other respects in which this government is not particularly helpful when it comes to free speech. There's the online safety bill, which I've referred to already. Uh, this government was going to bring forward a bill, what well, it was bringing forward a bill called the Worker Protection Bill. One of the reasons we have much less free speech in Britain today than we did prior to 2010 is because of the Equality Act, not wildly dissimilar to the Equality Bill that many people in America would like to see pass. The Equality Act has, has done an enormous amount to um, limit free speech in the workplace. So what it does is it makes employers liable for the harassment of their employees by other employees. And harassment can include employees with protected characteristics overhearing conversations, which in virtue of their protected characteristics, they find offensive or upsetting. They can sue their employers if they don't do enough, they don't take all reasonable steps to protect them from being harassed in that and many other ways, a lot of them related to disagreeable speech. And that has meant a kind of compliance culture invading workplaces, the metastasizing of the diversity training sector, unconscious bias training, anti-racism training. The reason companies put these things in place is so they can say we've taken all reasonable steps to protect our employees from being harassed uh, in case their employees sue them when they hear a disagreeable conversation or someone says something they think is insulting or whatever. Now, the Worker Protection Bill would have turbocharged the Equality Act. At the moment, employers only have liability for employee-on-employee -employee harassment. The Worker Protection Bill would have extended that liability, so it applied to third-party harassment of their employees. So, for instance, if you were a publican and you employed a barmaid and she overheard a couple of customers telling a saucy joke 
she could sue her employer, the publican, for not doing more to protect her from overhearing that conversation, which she found offensive or upsetting in virtue of her sex, which is a protected characteristic. And the same would apply to bars, restaurants, football grounds. So at a football ground, for instance, if a steward employed by the football (laughs) club overheard a fan shouting, let's say a partially sighted steward, overheard a fan shouting at the linesman, are you blind? The steward could then sue the club for not doing more, not taking all reasonable steps to protect him from overhearing that comment, which he found upsetting in virtue of his protected characteristic, his disability, his partial sightedness. Uh, so it would, have, it, would have, it would have essentially extended the compliance culture, which has poisoned workplaces, turned them into arenas in which people are constantly lowering their voices, looking over their shoulders, saying, can you say that? Um, it would have extended that ghastly cultural revolution to kind of uh, uh, outside the workplace, to leisure activities like gearing out to restaurants going to bars, going to sports games, and so forth. We managed to stop that. But this, the Conservative government, you know, seemingly a little bit asleep at the wheel, had allowed this to get quite far till we essentially threw a spanner in the works. I think we've succeeded in stopping that in its tracks. But, you know, if, if the next government is a late... Lots of people complain about this Conservative government, and it could have done a great deal more to protect free speech. Uh, and, it, you know, there, there are kind of... There's a, there's a, I'd say about half of the parliamentary conservative body have been infected by the woke mind virus. Um, but, but there are some robust pro-free speech conservative MPs, a parliamentary lobby who we're often in communication with, not just in the House of Commons, but also in the House of Lords. So I think we're in a better situation now than we will be if our next prime minister is Keir Starmer and we have a majority Labour government or even a Labour Lib Dem coalition. That's when I think, you know, the woke takeover of the state may kind of continue in earnest. And um, I'm sure that, you know, we think we're busy now. We'll be much busier in 18 months' time if Keir Starmer wins the next general election. So in the long run, are you optimistic or pessimistic? That was a pessimistic note, but it was tied to a transient event, which is an election and the next government. Do you see the Free Speech Union in the long run essentially playing defence, there's nothing wrong with that. Sitting, waiting for cases to come in and then defending those who've been targeted to the hilt and doing it over and over again, as might a good defense lawyer. Or do you see the argument shifting over time? You mentioned lobbying. Do you see government policy changing? I obviously know what you hope for and what I hope for too. But what sort of process is this is is it defensive is it offensive what's your expectation when i set up the free speech union i thought that we would be mainly engaged in offensive work that we would be improving the law doing things to better protect free speech and i think we we've done that up to a point but what we've mainly what's been our main preoccupation is preventing things from getting worse so defensive now i think in the short term that'll probably continue and if labor win the next election it'll become more intense more defensive but i think in the longer term i think there is hope i mean i think uh, one source of hope is that the great awakening appears to be peaking the highest grossing film of last year was was top gun maverick nicola sturgeon the kind of Scottish tyrant um, who had kind of merged wokery pokery with ethno nationalism, a particularly unpleasant cocktail. Um, she was deposed earlier this year because she went all in on kind of trans self ID. 
we've seen a bit of pushback. Generally, the trans rights activists are on the back foot. There are other other areas in which we can see the zeitgeist is shifting. Particularly, I think, as you know, as 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 companies retrench, they can, they they can afford to spend less money on hiring equity, diversity, and inclusion officers, and they can, they can't afford to spend quite as much money on ESG, CSR, etc. So, I think you know we're we're beginning to see the retrenchment of the kind of uh, the new religion. Uh, it appears to be peaking, but the problem is, it's been so successful. It's it's missionaries. Its proselytizing zealots have been so successful at capturing the kind of commanding heights of the cultural economy and politics to a great extent too. And even if they're defeated at the ballot box, it doesn't appear to kind of <laughs> set them back one step. So it's going to it's going to take a while. But you get the impression, at least, that culturally things are beginning to shift. And I think it it helps that they keep overreaching. You know, the number of people they're cancelling are so obviously, you know. Some of our greatest authors. So, for instance, it emerged the other week that that you know, P.G. Woodhouse yeah. had been bowdlerized by sensitivity readers at his publishers. Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl. We've seen Shakespeare now. Um, the Globe Theatre, one of the kind of premier theatres for Shakespearean productions in London, a replica of Shakespeare's theatre. They now attach trigger warnings to plays like Midsummer Night's Dream, says that they want to cancel Shakespeare, and it's like. As the as the kind of ranks of the council, the, those the new witchfinder generals want to throw on the bonfire of history, as it kind of swells with more and more impressive, genius level, creative, fantastic, admirable people. So I think that's going to kind of ultimately people are going to look around and think, hang on, which crowd do I want to be a member of? <laughs> These kind of horrible, grey, finger wagging, knotted browed censors. Or this fantastic crowd of kind of Rabelaisian, hard drinking, hard partying, brilliant cavaliers, and ultimately the, the latter group is just so much more attractive. But I think that 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 will help. All right. Well, I hope you are right, and that is a great note to finish on. So thank you so much, Toby, for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. And that's all we've got time for this week. I'm single dadding again this weekend as my wife has to go to a wedding. So I hope once again that I'll be able to thrill my children with extraordinary feats of competence, such as turning on the dishwasher and feeding the dog and remembering to pick them up from school. I will report back and let you know either way. And in the meantime, I'll say thank you to my guest, Toby Young. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the English police for not arresting me last week for my views on trains. And we'll see you next week.